Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast and follow me on Twitter at AE Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest in this episode is John Rood. John started an education business with his wife that began as an SAT and other test prep business and eventually found its niche in MCAT testing. Together, they grew the business, adding tutors and a management team before selling to private equity. John has also invested in a few search funds and is contemplating a search himself in the education space. During this episode, we talk about starting their education business, how they pivoted from tutoring to content, building a business in the context of operating systems and learning from others, and the value of organizations like Traction and Entrepreneur's Organization to small business operators. We also talk broadly about education businesses and where future business models in the space might lead. Enjoy. It's great to see you on the podcast, John. It was fun chatting you about your business and hearing more about your search work as well. I've been excited to have you. We had a previous guest in the education space, so I'm excited to have another one too. Would you be able to give a background on your work so far, your education business, and then what you're focusing on now? 
Yeah, Alex, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So my background going back, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and then I went to college and then thought, hey, college is super fun. I want to be a professor. So I went to try to be a professor, went to graduate school, and it turns out that you can really only be a professor and have a good career if you're like one of the very top people, especially if you are in a low demand field, which I certainly was. And turned out I was not going to be one of the top three graduates in political philosophy that year. So I went and tried to do something else. So what I did was I went into management consulting and I worked at a little firm here in Chicago, which is actually super fun. We came up basically with frozen food product ideas for large food companies, which was super fun. The great thing about consulting is that you work with really smart people. So I made a lot of friends there that I still have. But after a couple of years of that, decided I just needed to go do something else. And I had had a little bit of experience doing test prep because I'd worked briefly at Kaplan Test Prep, which is the industry giant, just as an instructor and on the corporate office. So I started a little test prep tutoring company with my wife, who had also been briefly at Kaplan as an instructor. And we started teaching students um, the law school admissions test just around Chicago. And it kind of snowballed from there. So at first we were the instructors and then we hired one instructor and then we hired two instructors and then we expanded our geographic footprint, ultimately found an online tutoring model, which was pretty successful for us. And then a couple of years in, we decided we wanted to have a significant pivot and move towards doing more content and more courses and decided to focus on the medical college admissions test, the MCAT for students going to med school. So We built a business there that did, let's see, we had print publications, we had flashcards, we had a learning management system, which we designed from the ground up, practice tests, still had our tutoring program. So that was really a full service MCAT test prep company. We ran that as kind of that more content-based business for a couple of years, and then ultimately were able to have a pretty nice exit to private equity in 2018. I worked there at my company for about a year and a half after it got sold and then left there at the end of 2019 and then had like a struggle with kind of figuring out what to do next. I think that one of the mistakes that I had made, which I wouldn't make again, is if you are exiting a business, it's not just like getting out of the business, but it's getting into something else. So kind of flailed around a little bit for a couple of months, lived through COVID as we all did, and then ultimately have kind of ended up essentially running a small search fund. So trying to find businesses that kind of fit my ability to run them, probably in the education training niche, and then also investing in some self-funded search deals myself. So can you walk through what the different, I'm curious about the frozen food one. What (laughs) kinds of frozen food did you invent? Were they like pre-made microwave dinners or are they more like mixes of different vegetables or fruits? What did you make? We tried all of those things. It was an interesting company. So the idea of this entire consulting firm was basically there was one guy who was like the head partner and he was, I won't go into detail about who he is, but he was a well-known professor at a really fancy business school. So like you're a professor, maybe you make 200 or 250 K being a professor, but then all those professors also have their own consulting firm. And so what he taught it was this like innovation and product development process. And so they had a consulting firm that essentially just did the process that he was teaching, but for large companies. So we would do a bunch of market research. We did focus groups, which was always super fun. Oftentimes the clients were these huge food companies that to your point were doing frozen foods. So I think that we had done work for the Healthy Choice brand. 
We did some work for the Hungry Man brand. I remember we did a bunch of pizza, like so much frozen pizza stuff, but it was fun. And it's the fun part about consulting is you get to kind of like invent stuff without being responsible for making it. And so as an entrepreneur now, like, I don't think that that would be right for me, but like imagine a world where you just could have a business idea, put it on a PowerPoint and then sell it for like a million dollars and not have to actually make it. Like that's the promise of management consulting, I think. (laughs) I love it. And you mentioned that your education business kind of added a content angle at one point where prior it was focused on tutoring and service-based and then shifted to content and a higher value. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Yeah, sure. So we had a really nice tutoring business. Tutoring and test prep and supplemental educational services are, I think, really attractive first businesses for someone to start because there's not a lot of barrier to entry. So If you or me or anyone listening wants to go have a business and be moderately successful within the first year, I think that you could hang up your shingle doing SAT or ACT prep or generalized tutoring in your city and have a decent business. And the margins can be pretty good. You can get to a certain amount of scale. But the challenge with that business is that because it's so services based, first of all, it has all of the problems that you would associate with project-based revenue, as we kind of say in the search fund world. And it can be tough to scale, secondly. And then the value is not there from the perspective of kind of the total enterprise value. So if you have a services business without a moat, the valuation of your business is maybe a couple times earnings. Whereas if you kind of get more into the wider world of education and ed tech, those multiples are substantially higher. So We made the decision based on both an opportunity that we saw in the market and then also kind of just where I wanted the value of that business to end up to say, let's keep this great tutoring business that we have. There's no reason to stop doing that, but let's go write some books. Let's go write some software. Let's go write some practice materials. And we were able to get some success there. Was there a moment or a series of moments that led you to see this as an opportunity for your business and something that you should do? Yeah, totally. So I had this incredible luck of getting a really good advisor on my team named Chris. And the way that we found Chris was by total accident. So when I went to get my first office space, which you and I were discussing before we started recording here, I hired a just a commercial real estate broker to find the space for me. And so she's showing me the space and she's like, oh, what's your business? So I told her, oh, it's tutoring and test prep. She said, oh, I just sold a condo to a guy who had been in that business. I was like, oh, what's his name? She said, oh, <laughs> his name's Chris. You should meet him. So we set up a time to meet and he had worked at one of the really large test prep companies previously. And so I was able to get him on as an advisor and he kind of just opened my eyes to this little niche in this medical test prep market, which then was underserved. Now it's probably overserved, but in 2012, 13, we were making this decision. It wasn't. So basically got really lucky. And the takeaway that I always tell people that are starting businesses like this is it's really important to get great advisors and great industry specific advisors. So like, yes, you want people that have run businesses and can show you like, here's how to do hiring and firing and here's how to withhold taxes and stuff like that, like really mechanical stuff. But if you're starting a little business and it's an industry where there are like heavyweights there, go get someone who's worked there to be an advisor for you. And it's worth, if you have to pay cash, if you have to pay a little bit of equity, I think that's definitely worth it to put together like a little mini kind of board of advisors really early on. And you mentioned earlier that it was project-based primarily, at least the tutoring side was. Can you clarify what you mean by that? Does that mean that it's just different classes of students coming in and then you cycle through and get a new crop of students? Is that how it works? Or can you just expand that a little bit more? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. So you've essentially got one product line. You sell it once to your students, and then all of your students essentially cycle every single year. It's a business with 100% churn. Now, even when we kind of moved upstream, test prep and tutoring is like that because you're teaching someone to go do something and assuming that you've done a passable job, they don't need you anymore. So you teach them to take the SAT, they take the SAT, and then you're done. And they only come back if you have like failed, basically. So that's not the outcome that anyone wants. It was important for us to kind of move to where we would have more of a suite of services where we could get someone to come in and maybe they buy a $20 book, maybe they buy a practice test, but then we have the ability to kind of upgrade them to a larger suite of products. So we can really kind of blow out what the lifetime value of the product would be by having a much wider suite of products. Gotcha. Was there anything you could do to extend how long a customer stays with you or was the name of the game just increase their average purchase value? I think it's increased purchase value. So in that field, kind of for the same reasons that I just said, you don't necessarily want people to be with you for a long time because you're always trying to think through. And frankly, you're trying to balance like what are the needs of the student from you as an educator's perspective versus you as a business person's perspective. So in theory, if you're going to teach someone how to take the SAT, could you sell them something where it was like four years and they started it when they were in middle school? Like oh, maybe you can do that. But from an educator's perspective, what they really need is to study intently for four to six months. So that's kind of what our goal was. I think that everyone in education is always thinking through from like a product mind perspective, how do you increase the number of years that you have with a student? So there's like this dream that everyone in test prep and education has, which is like you get students with some product when they're in kindergarten and then you have supplemental tutoring for them and then you have SAT test prep and then you have like college admissions, and you have like graduate school prep. And that's really hard to put together, but that is the dream. Is it hard just because that's just such a long runway of products for someone and it just takes a long time to develop all those? Or are there other hurdles in that too? I think that the biggest hurdle is just that people lose track of your brand identity because the time horizons are really long. If you teach someone, let's say you help them get into like a selective high school in a big metro area. So in Chicago, like there's tests that you have to take as a seventh grader, right? To get into a fancy high school. So you help someone with that. Yeah, that kid wants SAT prep, but that's four years later. So does mom or dad remember the name of your company? Well, probably they remember, but at the same time, they're probably going to take a little bit of a flyer and look at some other choices too. So what things did you do to continue having new students join your different classes? How would you keep folks coming in? I think that there's two important things in this market, and they're really obvious when you think about it. So the devil's in the details. The first one is referral. So just as with a lot of businesses, if you do a good job and you kind of like seed referrals a little bit, you can get a lot of success that way. The second thing we did was that we created a lead magnet. We offered one section of our content for free, and that got us just a ton of attention. So even to this day now, I mean, I'm, the business is still operating, even though I'm not involved with it at all. Still, students will say like, oh, everyone who's going to take this test has got to sign up for this free resource. So I think like in education, like that's wildly important. And you see that being played out across basically every education company, right? It's going to offer some kind of a free trial. From your time at Kaplan as an instructor, what kinds of lessons did you pull from the way they ran their business to the way you decided to run your business? I was with Kaplan really briefly, so I probably learned way more about how they operate while I was running my business than I did when I was working for them. But I would say they had a level of standardization that I probably would have underestimated as a student. So when you're an instructor at Kaplan, they give you this big binder. And I don't know if it's still a binder, and this was 
like 2007 now, but they gave me this big binder. It was like six inches thick. And like, literally it said, write this on the board. And it said like, make this joke, like, like make this like logical connection. It really was kind of just like the McDonald's or Burger King of education. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a positive way. Like, so they're able to hire much more freely because I think that their training and development resources were really good. So I think when you're starting out, running a tutoring company, you kind of tend to think like, well, everything has to be totally customized. We're going to hire great instructors that just know how to do this innately. And those things may be true, but having great material for those people to use as educators turned out to be really important too. In our previous call, you talked about building a business as in the context of building systems. And it sounds like you've learned a lot of systems from Kaplan and just building the business yourself. Can you talk about the different systems you've put in place and the importance of having a process in your business? Thank you for asking. I'm super passionate about that. I feel like basically there's this line that they have at, what is it? It's Vista Equity, right? Like the big private equity firm that buys software and they say all software tastes like chicken. I kind of think that that's a great line. And I think that most businesses end up having the same problems. And oftentimes those problems have the same solution. And the way I found this out, like I, as as many people do it, just as a small business owner, would like struggle with all this stuff is like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to like make this decision on hiring and firing? How am I going to make this decision on kind of like structuring the strategy of my company? And then when I got to a little bit of scale, I was really fortunate to join a group called Entrepreneurs Organization, which I think probably a lot of people will have heard of. It's very much like YPO is its kind of sister organization. There's lots of others that are like it. But I started to go to lots of EO events and I was like, okay, here's all the problems in my business. Like, what do I do? And basically everyone's there was like, oh, Everyone has the exact same problems and here's the solution. And I was like, oh, that's great. Thanks for telling me that. And the solution turned out to be systems. And there's lots of great books about it. The one that I ended up really kind of like glomming onto and making kind of like the Bible for running our business was this book called Traction by Gino Wickman, which tons of people have heard of. Basically, everyone that I knew in Entrepreneur's Organization had read the book and had put at least some of it into their business. And so a lot of people know about it. I'm happy to dive into it if you want. But I think that having frameworks for how to do like the daily running of the business is critically important because especially first-time entrepreneurs don't necessarily know how to do that and will frequently make exactly the same mistakes that everyone else has. And so to the extent that you could avoid that, that's a very good thing. Can you walk through an example within your business of a system that you implemented? Yeah, totally. So I think that the the system that turned out to be the most impactful was just a very basic quarterly and annual goal setting system. So we got ours out of traction. A lot of people also use OKRs, which I guess is big at Google. And one of the fancy VCs wrote a big book about it. So that's popular too. But the goal setting process for us, I would say like previously, goal setting would be like me kind of like sitting there and be like, okay, this is kind of what we want to do this year. It'd be good if the salespeople sold some stuff, try to sell more than you sold last month. And that was terrible. Like that was all a terrible way to do it. The right way to do it is to sit down and have a formalized annual goal setting process and say, here's our 10-year plan. Here's our three-year plan. And here's what we have to accomplish this year in order to make the right progress towards those things. And so every department in the company should have specific goals for the year. And then those goals are broken down on a quarterly basis. And then within the departments, it's broken down even further. I mean, I'm a big proponent that with a possible exception of like very, very frontline, low level, like customer support people, which oftentimes are outsourced anyway, almost everyone at the company should have a specific quarterly quantitative goal that they're pushing towards. And when we put that in, like that was hugely impactful in our business. 
a quarterly or a quantitative goal seems pretty obvious for someone like a salesperson. Can you give an example of what a quantitative goal might be for a different role in your company? Yeah, totally. So if I think about like the company that we ran, I agree, like sales is pretty obvious. Marketing is generally pretty clear too. So we're saying we need this many in the top of the funnel. We need this kind of conversion rate from paid spend, from earned media, et cetera. I think that where it gets more challenging to your point is when we think about it more on kind of the product side or even the technology side, because those things can be a little bit more unpredictable. But on our business, for example, we were an education content and services business. So we said, hey, this is the publication that we're writing this quarter. So as we break that down, what does it look like for everyone on the team to say, like, this is like the output that you need to have. This is where we need to be at certain milestones. And some of that seems really obvious, but I think that a lot of small businesses just don't take the time to do it. They kind of say, like, we're going to work on this stuff, kind of wrench on it and see where we get. But being able to to communicate really clearly to every member of the team, like here's what the expectation is for the company and here's what the expectation is for you, that's really impactful. I asked you earlier about a different moment that clued you in that you need to adjust your business or add the content side. Were there different moments along the way within your business that told you that you need to add systems into your company? Here's one that was really impactful to me. So I came up I didn't go to business school. I didn't study business in college or anything like that. And so I came up and just, I think, had some like weirdly like snotty ideas about some things. I think a lot of people hold this idea that aren't entrepreneurs. They say, like, oh, companies that have like values and visions and stuff, that's all like corporate boilerplate crap. Like none of that matters. I think I thought that too. And so I was doing an interview and someone asked me, and this was probably 2011. Now, this is a long time ago. They were like, so what are the values your company. I was like, well, we try to do these things for our customers. I don't really know. We didn't really formalize it. And they're like, oh, okay. And luckily that person still ended up coming to our company. It was a good contributor, but I reflected on that. And I thought, wait a second, like we really need to kind of formalize that. So I went out and started looking around to see who's doing good writing on culture, who's doing good writing on like the meaning and purpose behind businesses and started actually got the first framework that we used out of traction. I think that my thinking has evolved a little bit on kind of how to think about those like cultural frameworks you put in a business. I think that was really critically important. I'm just being able to think through what is the business doing? Like, why should people come work here in addition just to like getting a paycheck? That stuff is really important. And I think a lot of first timers tend to overlook that. What writings did you find were particularly valuable in thinking through building a culture? The one that I like now is called Culture by Design. I found this from one of your podcast guests, actually, Michael Gurley, who I know you'd had on is big on Twitter. And culture by design kind of takes this idea that what most businesses do is create, is like sit down at a conference room, like, here's what our values are. And the values, even if you're doing a basically good job, like the values for most businesses all also kind of taste like chicken. We're going to serve our customers really well. And we're going to like respect each other in the workplace and blah, blah, blah. Some companies do better than others. One of my competitors in test prep had done a really good job of making their values being kind of like either or. Like a company can be fast or slow. We're fast. But they would also kind of like say why that was good and why it was bad. They're like, this is fast. We're fast. We get things done. We produce more. But at the same time, we're going to make more mistakes, which we have to go back and fix. Those are, those are good values. But what I liked in culture by design was it defines not the values, but the behaviors So we say not like, here's kind of what we see as God's law for our business. It's here's what we actually do. 
So you can drill down into a higher level of specificity and say, like, here are the behaviors that we want to replicate in our business. It's a lot more actionable, especially when you're kind of doing it for the first time. Can you talk about some of your messaging to your team in communicating those new values? Yeah, I think that it was really well received. I think that, first of all, you want to have a moderately collaborative process. So it can't be the kind of thing where like people are voting or you're like doing this work at an all hands. But I do think that it was valuable in our company to kind of bring in a couple of our top people. Essentially, we brought in kind of our VP level folks and did this exercise together. As the entrepreneur is the CEO, you have to kind of make the final decisions. You have to break the ties. So it is your call. But I think getting people kind of on board in that process is important. And then getting your managers built in to spread that throughout the organization is really important. I think to your question, the biggest challenge is you roll something like that out and your frontline folks listen to it and they're like, okay, here's another thing that came down from corporate that we have to like pretend to care about and deal with. And then like next month will be some other thing that they found at some other conference. So I think, first of all, you have to say up front, like, this is definitely what we're doing. These are definitely kind of the values of the processes or the tools that we're using. And then you have to, as again, as the CEO, you have to verbally and in writing reinforce that stuff all the time. So when you have an all hands, you start with your values. When you have a planning meeting, you start with your values. When you do hiring and firing and promotion, you think about it from the lens of those values as well. So does Susan from accounting, like how in line is she with our values? You're trying to hire for a new position. Obviously, skills are important, but making sure that there's that cultural fit, I think is important too. And so in that hiring process, making sure that you are explicit with people like, this is really what we do. And if it doesn't resonate with you, you shouldn't work here. I think like that's, you want to make sure that you're using kind of strong language, really all around kind of instilling those cultural things. I keep thinking of that scene from Office Space, where (laughs) the boss is talking about the different like make sure that all you're doing, everything you're doing is good for the company and he has the consultants there. Watching that movie, it seems really vague, the different goals or values for the business. But how did you take the values that you communicated and connect them with some of your quantitative goals for the company? First of all, they don't all necessarily have to connect up. So I think that you set your behaviors and your values, but also people understand it's a business and it has to make money. In some sense, like those don't line up. In theory, you could set was one of your values, like we make money, but no one likes that because as an entrepreneur, like people just hear that and that means that you're going to buy a yacht based on their hard work. And that's not what you want to communicate to your people. So some of that doesn't necessarily line up directly, but where it does, I think that you can say, hey, one of the behaviors that we really want to make sure that we're doing is that we had a behavior or value you could say that was, we want to make sure that we educate customers, whether they work with us or not. So we would spend a lot of time with students on the phone or in chat, like even if they weren't already our customers, or frankly, even if they weren't going to be our customers. So we had people that would call in and be like, hey, can you talk to me in detail about this thing? By the way, I'm already in a class at Kaplan. And it was important to us that we would kind of get the reputation as the approachable people that students wanted to talk to, because ultimately that's a behavior that would connect up with our values, but then ultimately connects up with kind of the financial results of the business. So that's interesting too. So how did you make yourself easy to talk to? Was it picking up the phone quickly or just taking a customer service set of values or something like that? What went into creating that effect for students? The basics of it is the things that you had said, which is doing the basics of being responsive, which 
Sounds so silly, but I think that we've seen a lot as kind of like small business acquisitions have gotten really trendy. Like on Twitter, everyone says, hey, you know, I was talking to a small business owner and I did like a secret shopper and no one picks up the phone. No one responds to voicemails. That stuff is really typical. So if you have a small business, just doing like those very basic things that show that you like sort of care about your customers even a little, like that actually goes a long way. But in this specific context, what we would do is we understood that as sellers of high priced educational support services, what we were selling was really important to parents. So this was not like, I'm going to buy like a t-shirt. If I don't like it, I'm going to throw it away. This is, we're going to decide, does little Jimmy get into Stanford or not? And that's an important thing for parents. So part of it was we want to educate about the tests. Part of it was we want to educate about the process. And part of it was we want to show a high degree of empathy to parents who are in this kind of hard decision. So we would frequently have sales calls with people that would last 20, 30, sometimes 40 minutes, where they're just like, basically, we're giving them an hour of free therapy. Now, did each one of those close? Like, no, some of those closed, some of those didn't close. But ultimately, what I think is really important was that we kind of set the expectation that like, hey, give us a call. Let's talk. We'll figure out if we can work together later. But for now, let's just talk. Did you build goals around that too? Because I imagine as a salesperson or customer service person, if you spend an hour with someone on the phone and they don't close, like that's obviously a risk to some of your quantitative goals for that time period. But did you build goals around like it's okay to have these long calls, even if it doesn't result in a sale or something else? Yeah, totally. And again, that kind of goes back to what behaviors we're trying to put into our company. And so by establishing that behavior of doing long sales calls is consistent with our value set, that makes it okay. And now obviously you also have to kind of fiddle with the incentive structure because the incentives is not just values, it's also money. So salespeople are on commission. They don't want to spend 40 minutes of their time talking with someone when it's not going to close. And so I think that the ways that we thought through that was number one, frankly, have enough salespeople such that they don't need to like pretend that they're going through a tunnel, right? On a bad call to get to a good call. And that happens a lot in companies that are very sales focused. So we didn't want to do that. And then also, I think that we were able to kind of prove quantitatively that a lot of these long calls, even if they didn't convert right away, ultimately converted down the road. Because again, we're setting our value proposition and brand proposition as being really approachable. And that's something that creates goodwill for people if they do come to us later on, or if they're looking to refer someone else to similar services. It sounds like you've done a pretty good job or you had done a pretty good job scaling your business and adding systems and building in a management structure. What did you find more challenging as your business grew? So the short answer is people. So when I say I'm thinking like, what are the individual like people things that were challenging, but it's almost always people in a business like this. And really in any business, right? Because people are ultimately going to drive the performance of the company. So to the extent that you as the entrepreneur, as the CEO, figure out how to be a good manager, how to create the right incentive structures, how to convince highly talented people to come work at your business when they have other options, especially like in the climate that we're in now in the economic cycle. That's so important. And so the challenges that we had were not so much, can we create a good product? We knew we could create a good product. Like, of course it's possible, but it's like, can we get the top people in our field to come work at our company? Can we incentivize them correctly? That to me is like, when I say all businesses taste like chicken, like all businesses ultimately come down to people problems. Just in the education space, what trends are you seeing and what do you think the next couple years of education businesses, what do you think they look like and what do you think ends up changing the most? 
So education, I think, obviously has had a huge amount of transition in the last year. A lot of the kind of famous education ed tech people have all said something like, we saw five to 10 years of digital transition happen in the last 18 months due to COVID. School totally went online, basically overnight. I remember we pulled our son out of school on March 13th, which was a Friday. It was Friday the 13th, ironically. On Sunday, we got the note from Chicago Public Schools saying that school is basically canceled. And like two weeks later, he was back in school on Zoom, which was, first of all, is an incredible achievement. But being able to kind of make that transition, there's so many opportunities to pop up. So like I could kind of talk all day about what are the opportunities that big businesses have. But from more of kind of like a small business and operator perspective, there's a bunch of opportunities. One of them is I think that there's been so much excitement in the market about getting more kids online for supplementary services that the counter-cyclical opportunity opens up as well of doing more brick-and-mortar stuff. So you and I were talking, I signed my kid up for online Minecraft camp for this week before he starts school. That wasn't available easily in Chicago, but if I could have put him in in-person camp this week, definitely would have done that. And every parent I talk to wants their kid to do less screens and less Zoom. So I think there's an opportunity for more operators to do exactly that. So I would say... Like, make sure that you're not kind of sleeping on in-person technology camp. Don't sleep on in-person music school. Just because things are moving online, there's opportunities there. The other big opportunity is in workforce training and development, which is something that I'm super interested and passionate about. I think that everyone is kind of known for a long time that colleges in general are not doing a super good job of preparing students for the workforce. So a lot of that work has now fallen on essentially private providers. And so there's big private providers that do like boot camps and there's like Lambda School where you can learn to code for free until you get a job. There's also like a lot of hyper niche opportunities. For every Lambda School that's really big, there's opportunities to like teach stay-at-home moms how to do proofreading or something like that, right? So it's, we haven't done a good job of getting people into careers. So what are the really niche careers that we can then go out and teach people how to do? It'll be a lot of interesting businesses around that. Any that you're looking to start? The one that I can't get out of my mind, and I don't know exactly what it's going to end up being, but there's so much focus and attention on our white collar kind of like knowledge workforce, because that's where VCs come from. And that's where people that are famous on Twitter come from. But there's this underserved market of blue collar workers who oftentimes can get upskilled and move into higher wage positions. And a lot of people are working on that problem. But I think there's also this problem where there's this mismatch between blue collar talent and employment. Right now, it's hard to hire. It's incredibly hard to hire for everyone, especially for blue collars, right? That's why like anytime you travel, the hotel doesn't want to clean your room because they can't hire staff. It's hard to get someone to come do landscaping. It's hard to hire landscapers. So blue collar workers in this environment have this incredible amount of economic power, which I don't think that they've had before. So I'm trying to think through this week, like, what can you do such that a blue collar worker, maybe they're making 15 bucks an hour, but someone across town would love to hire them for 20. How can you kind of make that marketplace more efficient in a way that it's not just like a job board? Job board is what I was thinking too, but how could you build it into be more beyond just a job board? Yeah, I don't think the answer worked out, but the theory that I'm contemplating in the shower this week is trying to think through, is there a way to get, to build kind of like a, blue collar LinkedIn, because if you are a computer programmer and you're on LinkedIn, 
every day you get messaged by recruiters, like constantly, right? Because that's an in-demand white collar profession. How could you build that? Maybe it's on the local level where if you are a commercial painter, and again, like you make 15 bucks an hour, but across town, someone would love to hire you at 30. They just don't know your name. How can you create the platform such that people that want to hire painters can go on and message people? So kind of like figuring out how to operationally give blue collar workers the same access to like recruiters and that ecosystem of hiring at scale um, that right now kind of our white collar professionals have. Are you looking to buy, build, or run a business in the future? Or is search investing going to be your way of creating impact in businesses or this industry? I want to do both. So search investing is really interesting to me. I'm just getting into it and making my first investments now, but that's something I want to continue doing because I think that, first of all, I think it's an attractive asset class, but also I think it's highly meaningful being able to transition local businesses to the next generation of ownership. I think that's like a good thing for the world. But I do think that just investing is probably not right for me. I think that the model that I really want to be more involved in is I want to be able to kind of think through like what are interesting ways to solve problems, go learn everything I can about the market, and then get the right team together to go run it with me as the investor or the chairperson or whatever. The title doesn't really matter. And my thought process there is it's hard to be an entrepreneur. It's hard to be a business owner. And there's so many people that I think if they could just like snap their fingers and be in a small business as a CEO, like would they do it? Of course they would. And a lot of those people are kind of like in middle management at large companies. And so I saw this all the time in test prep because in test prep, as I mentioned, I worked briefly at Kaplan and left and many years later started a tutoring company. You see people frequently in education leave the company that they're at and go put out their own shingle. And that's an opportunity that can happen in any niche. So if you can find someone who could be an incredible founder CEO and just needs the capital and then kind of needs the structure around the idea, I think that's super powerful. How do you think you find those types of people today? It's totally networking. I'll give you an example. I've been interested this year in kind of the parent coaching world, which it's obvious what that is. I'm a parent. I have a challenge with the way I'm parenting. I need to go find someone to help me out with it. It's distinct in a couple of like weirdly technical ways from like just getting a therapist. And there's like this little community of parent coaches where there's some organizations that train them and then they kind of all go off on their own. I would love to put that organization together to kind of bring that to more people at scale and make that both accessible to customers and also a fulfilling career. So how do I go about that? Well, I'm going to call everybody in the space. I know a bunch of people in the space. I want to keep meeting more people. And ultimately, I think that I'll find in that space someone who kind of meets those characteristics that I was discussing, which is number one, would love to be a CEO founder, but has some barriers. Number two, the barriers are overcomable with some capital and some structure. And three, they know that market and they know that world down pat. They're the subject matter expert. They're the craftsperson and just need some help or can accelerate their progress by putting some capital and some kind of like business acumen in place. It seems like a nice hybrid between being an operator and investing. You mentioned investing probably isn't the only thing you want to do long term, but being a chair of a board or heavily involved with one entrepreneur or maybe a couple, it seems like a nice happy medium between the two or between being an investor or being an operator. Yeah, I think so. I think that part of it is just driven by the fact that I was in a business for so long and have relatively recently gotten out of it and just don't want to do it right now, again, all the way. 
I also think that there's risk to that. And the risk, I think, is you just had a guest on your podcast a couple of days ago, Brent Bashore, who I'm sure everyone in the space knows. And I'd read his book. And one of the things that stuck out with me in the book is that there's three ways that you can approach kind of being an investor slash chairperson, right? One way is to say, you're in charge of the business. Send me the report at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter. Like, call me if you have questions or don't. I don't care. The other thing that you can do is say, I'm the CEO of this business. I make the decisions and everyone reports to me. And the very worst thing to do is to be in the middle where you say, like, I'm going to kind of like meddle sometimes, like if the CEO makes the decision I don't like, I'm going to come in and like overrule them and look over their shoulder, just make everyone nervous and muddy up the lines of communication. That's, I think, the problem to avoid. So I'm not sure what the answer is there, but I'm keen to avoid that problem. Is there just a maybe more frequent feedback loop you could have with the CEO that keeps something consistent? So they're not always worried that you're going to email and overrule some random decision they made during the week, but you have a scheduled time that you chat and discuss ongoings in the business. Like, What are some of your ideas for fixing that? So one of my ideas is I'm a big believer that every business and every leadership team should have a regularly scheduled weekly management meeting. And I'm also a big believer that it should be highly structured because I've seen really bad weekly management meetings where people kind of come in and just like, shoot the breeze about what they did the weekend and kind of like shoot the breeze about what they're doing that week. And then like, that's kind of it. And it takes an hour still. When I was in my business, we ran a meeting structure that I got from Book Traction. I'm a shameless fanboy of it, but it was a highly structured meeting where you're going over your quarterly goals and giving an update. You're reviewing your KPI scorecard. You're talking very specifically about the challenges that are occurring in the business and making like a plan at that very second to go fix them. That's a format that I love. I have put that in a couple other businesses that I've been involved with over the years. I've seen a lot of other people operate that kind of a format. And so that connects up with your question, because I think that if there's going to be a management meeting and it's the CEO and the top people, can the investor chairperson participate in that? I don't know. And I tend to think yes, as long as you are not like an overruler, like as long as you're clearly there to help and not to meddle, but to have that structure where this is the touch point with the investor and we're not going to have another one. That's one way you can do it. The other way is just like the classic private equity owned. We're going to do a meeting every week and you send me your numbers. And then like I come on the call 10 minutes late and from my last thing and like hurriedly look at your spreadsheet and make some like random off the cuff remarks. That's another way that you could do it. That doesn't seem like your style. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's how I'm going to do it, but that's a way you could do it. <laughs> Excellent. Moving into some closing questions. You've been obviously in the education business, but I'd be curious, what class in college would you teach if you could be about any subject you wanted? I love this question. And I had a lot of choices because I'm so passionate about learning and I'm so passionate about getting students prepared for their careers. And what I ended up with is I'd love to teach a course on lifetime learning, which is we in our society, for some reason, I think it's a mistake, have said adult students are going to have all of their formalized learning in four consecutive years at the beginning of their career. And that's not great. So students come out in the world and soon find out, number one, they don't have the right skills. And even if they do, when they graduate, those skills are outdated within five years. So the course that I would love to teach is how to do planning for lifetime learning. So how do you think about your career, not just as your first job, but a 60-year kind of arc and thinking through how do you find the right resources, the right courses, the right books, the right networking contacts, kind of like say, here's where I am today. I want to move to the next phase. How do I get there without the benefit of being in college? I'd love to teach that. So what would you teach? Would you teach how to continually find new 
books or meet people or take courses, different classes? What sorts of um, like pieces of that course would you include? I think that the first one, and again, I, you're seeing I'm big on this. I think the first is goal setting. The first is thinking about where do people want to get in their career? Because I remember when I graduated college, you know, like I said, I was like, oh, I'll go to law school. Oh, I'll be a professor. Oh, I'll go into consulting. People that are 22 just don't know. And that's okay. Like you don't have to know and you shouldn't know. But as you start to develop in your career, you say like, okay, I got this job in like PR or whatever, and I like it. And I want to be the CEO of a PR firm. How do I get there? So first of all, how do you structure working back from that? And then how do you think, okay, so what I'm going to do is like, I'm going to take a course from a college, but I'm going to combine that with like a cohort based course from a practitioner that only teaches. And I'm also going to join on deck for PR or whatever. So it's a matter of what are the goals and then how do you find the resources and put them together in a coherent way? I love that. What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? This is one that I really struggled with. So I've changed this in the last 18 months. So I sold my company. I worked there for 18 months and I left and I decided to take a little time off. But then my little time off became a lot more time off because COVID hit and I wanted to teach kindergarten to my kids as opposed to them just like watching TV all day, I guess. So that didn't seem the right time to like start a business or really get involved with anything. And I had this like thing in my mind, which is like, what will people say if they know that like I haven't been doing anything like productive in the business world for six or eight months? What will they think? Like all the people that thought I was so smart. Now they know that I'm not going to accomplish anything in life. And I just realized that's stupid and no one cares. Maybe like my dad calls me every week is like, do you have a job? He has like, no, I don't have a job yet. But other than my dad, like absolutely no one cares. I could just like disappear from the business world and that would be okay. People would not be upset. Now, I don't want to do that, right? I want to be here and add value and create things and build. But I just think that kind of separating out like what I really want to be doing in every different phase of life or every different season of life is totally divorced from like, my expectation of what people think I should be doing because people don't care. That's a good one. That's a hard one to get over too. I think especially in my experience in school for most of my life at this point, you care very strongly about what other people think of you because it's reflected in how they interact with you, your friendships, your grades are in some ways a reflection of what other professors think of you. And getting over that has been hard. But were there a few things you did or came to understand that made that easier to not care what other people thought of you? Yeah, I went to therapy. I'm a huge proponent of mental health services. I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I've had a therapist that I've worked with on and off for six or seven years. And then on top of that, I've had, I mentioned parent coaching. I've gotten a parent coach. I mean, I've gotten all sorts of like help in different phases of my life. And I'm always really open with that because I think that it's so impactful for a lot of people, maybe even for everyone, but especially like for entrepreneurs and business owners where the decisions that we make in our business life seem so impactful and so like permanent and being able to kind of like talk that over with someone who's like only in your corner. I think that that's really important. I love that. What's the best business you've ever seen? So the best business I've ever seen, you're going to love this because like in the small business, Twitter, these lawn care businesses are so trendy right now. And I finally learned why, because I have this like vacation rental property on the shore of Lake Michigan in Michigan we have a lawn care service for it. And I've had the same lawn care service for five years and they're absolutely terrible. Like they're like the poster child of, and it look, if the guy hears this podcast, which you won't like, he doesn't care. He knows this stuff. They don't answer the phone. They don't respond to emails. They are subscription based. So they're like, okay, you sign on this dotted line and every week we're going to mow your lawn until your lawn doesn't need mowing. And then we're going to come shovel your snow. 
and they bill me every month and I'm not going to ever unsubscribe because number one, they actually do show up for the thing that they said they're going to do. I could try to go to a competitor and I've tried, but all the competitors are like one person shops, which they can't provide that level of service. So I get this terrible service from these guys. They don't take my calls. They don't want to hear from me. They're not going to customize the service at all. Like they don't care if anyone ran over the flowers, but I'm keep paying them like basically forever as long as they own that house. Sounds like something you should start. I thought about it. Yeah, I thought about trying to buy that business. But I think that the one thing that's a hang up there is right now kind of getting like blue collar seasonal labor is so, so hard and so, so competitive. It's just, I'm sure it's a tough time to be in that business. Oh yeah, I'm sure. It's definitely not an easy one. There's a couple lawn care folks I chat with and hiring folks has been really hard and a lot of folks just leave too and find other jobs. There's been a lot more turnover recently. Thank you, John, for coming on the podcast. It's been so much fun to hear about education business and different advice for searchers or folks thinking about operating businesses. And I love your comment about therapy too. That's something I should probably look into as well. Definitely would be helpful. But thank you, John, for sharing your time. This has been awesome. Yeah, Alex, this is super fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Oh.